0: With traffic, errands, and parking, cars can be a chore. But a great car can be an adventure, a getaway, and a prized possession. Whatever your budget
1: or family require, there's a car out there you'll love. We're here to help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Debate. Happy Tuesday. I am quite excited right now because, not just because it's another podcast day, but because today is a video I didn't do. I I don't know if you've seen it yet, but you need to watch. Today we have a video dropping that I have been audience for. It is the first of a series, and I have been bothering Paul, and you have been bothering Paul, and I am incredibly excited. Paul is doing a design series. This is the first one ever. He is fixing, this is our title for all of these, he's fixing a car. In this case, he is fixing the C8. This is total freeform, where he just goes, I wish it would have been like this. What is jaw-dropping to me, my friend, is how well you can do this in real time.
0: Well, thank you, thank you, and guys, I hope you get a chance to see it. This is not meant. I'm going to go ahead and caveat everything. It's not meant to say, "Hey, the designers at various car companies don't know what they're doing." It's more of a sure. take on, you know, when things come out and we all see it and we like or dislike whatever that is, the mm-hmm, Beaver mm-hmm. Teeth, the you know yeah, whatever damn. that is, the Predator Mon Lexus, totally, all those kinds of totally. things, and we think, "All right, now, why do I like that? Why do I not like that?" And it's sometimes tough to articulate. Why you like a thing or why you don't or a new car comes out and we're all just sort of looking at it in the photos and not really making a decision yet and we're reserving judgment. I thought we'd start with the Corvette C8, the new Stingray, because it is the latest news. There's all kinds of news and there will continue to be. But I thought, what a perfect thing, because it is mid-engine for the first time ever. And again, this is not meant to eviscerate the design team and say, well, and you look don't. at me, look at what no, I'm doing. It's so much better. It's it's more like, here's a suggestion, because I didn't spend six months sketching and yeah. tearing oh, yeah. my hair out with you know ideas and what should it be? Because what a car. Mm. I mean, <laughs> of all the things that it had to be to so many groups of people... I yeah. can't imagine yeah, yeah. the endless meetings for that car. So anyway, mm-hmm. all that to mm-hmm. say is there is a design piece out on YouTube. It is fixing the, it's my opinion. You can totally mm-hmm. disagree. Leave me a comment. I'd love it if Please. you commented. Really Please. would. That'd be fun.
1: It's going to be a really fun piece. I'm just excited about the fact that you're finally doing these series. And I've told you before, this is a skill set that's so far out of the realm of what I can do, and I think most of our audience can do, that I'm just excited in that way for you to kind of show off your skill and just be like, okay, let me do this. Because cause it's that same thing you and I do in a car, where <laughs> it, it looks easy. You can drive at 80 miles an hour and talk to the car and try to try to be intelligent and make a good point all at the same time is not something everybody can do. I mean, a lot of people can, but it's not something everybody can do. Sure. This is that same kind of category, because you are sketching in real time as you talk, and I'm just floored <laughs> well thank I you, mean, there's, thank there's you. I mean, you there's some editorial compression going on because you drew for a little longer than the piece is but by and large it's just like wait this happened just now so it's a very fun piece there'll be more of those coming we also have a video coming on thursday we're trying to do tuesdays and thursdays while we're all stuck at home uh speaking of stuck at home paul and i just happen to not be both in studio today we'll be back in studio again soon so that is going on more fast blasts are coming oh and also pilgrimage I know you're not thinking about traveling right now, but Pilgrimage is coming in August. There are questions that have come up for Pilgrimage. We've got a bunch of questions coming later. I will get to that one later. But Pilgrimage is happening in August, and signups are available now.
0: Yep. If you go to everydaydriver.com, at the Adventures tab right in the middle, you can see all the details. And if you go ahead and click the Sign-up button as if you're signing up, it gives you more details. So that's where to dive in. gives you more details, and the frequently asked questions are deep in there. So go ahead and look at that. And also... Thanks to our sponsors for the television support yeah, for yeah, bringing yeah. all the seasons to you guys. Covercraft as our headline sponsor, Griot's Garage mm-hmm, Car Care Products, mm-hmm. and Haggerty Insurance as well. Pretty exciting for today's podcast. Todd and I had a chance to spend time with McKeel Haggerty who is the CEO yep. of Haggerty and so big thanks to McKeel for coming on the podcast and thanks to all of our sponsors Auto Tempest as well you've heard uh, the ad reads for those guys and uh, yeah big thanks can you give us a little update on the Amazon season 6 where we're at with releasing all <laughs> the episodes without getting too uh, worked up must must you hurt me must you <laughs> hurt me
1: I, I, I Just, do I have to tell uh, it? it's a status the, update the story more than anything is, it's a Status the story is I keep chasing them. Uh, they did actually finally review all of our remaining standout four episodes. They kicked one of them back for actually, sorry, they kicked two of the four back for a technicality that I have since resolved and I have resubmitted them. They have not done what they've always done in the past, which is the two that didn't get kicked back should have just been published. They weren't. Mm, so okay. I am now right. awaiting the re-review of the ones that got kicked back. That theoretically should take less time than it took to get to this stage, because it took, honestly, four or five times longer than it should have to get to this phase. But of course, everybody's moving slower, and Amazon apparently is moving slower than everyone else. So I am annoyed, (laughs) but they are on their way. One of the things I'm excited about is as a response to this and other things, we did take one of those pending episodes for Amazon, which is our third part of our lemons adventure. Mm, Yes. And we took that and we put it with the other two parts. We had a feature film on lemons racing that a lot of people have really enjoyed. Thank you for the great, great comments on that. I've been very thrilled. That is on YouTube right now, free for everybody.
0: Yep. Yep. For sure. So enjoy that. And in the meantime, we're going to jump on with McKeel right now. McKeel, thanks for talking cars with us. We we, of course, love doing this all the time. And I'm excited for our audience to hear directly from you. Because people know the Haggerty name. You know, they know Mm -hmm. that Haggerty means classic car insurance. And as we've talked about on future episodes, we're gonna be hosting additional Haggerty experts from various divisions, I'll say, of the company to explain, you know, more in depth about various products. But again, we wanted to begin with you and just Put it to you. How did it all start? What was the inspiration for your dad, for your family, to start off the company?
2: Uh, well, thank you. Um, it's an it's an honor to be here and to have this conversation with you. The beginnings of the company actually didn't start in automotive, although my my dad was both a, a car guy. Grew up in Detroit, loved cars, you know, Mm. definitely in that era when any time a new car showed up at the dealership, literally people would leave their homes and go and and see the car and show them windows, (laughs) Uh, that kind of level of car culture. His grandfather worked at at Ford and we were just a car family. Um, And I grew up in this household where he was constantly working on cars in the garage and both I and my sisters were able to uh, restore a car with him in our early teens Uh, would be you know, kind of our first—it was kind of our first collector car, but our kind of first driver, and you cool. know, it was kind of what it was it was that era before you know maybe cars were thought of as always being just about how valuable they are. It was more that wow, you could in if you get, if you just restored an older car, you could get a lot of car for the money, mm-hmm. and it, you'd have the pride of of working on it. So it's a little bit like you know when you talk to vintage racing guys. They kind of laughed because they said, well, vintage racing is just cheaper racing, right? Yeah. For the most part, because (laughs) you can race a vintage car cheaper than you can buy a brand new race car. Absolutely. Yeah. The core premise of the business when you, and my mom is still living, she's 85. um, My dad passed about six years ago, is is the same from all of these years, back to 1984. And that is that people take good care of their toys. Mm. It's that Mm. simple.
3: Yeah. Yeah, When you have something
2: you care about, when you have something that you don't need to drive, it's a toy. It's something you take pride in. And, mm-hmm. and whether that's because it goes fast or it's an expression of your success or wh- whatever the reason, some nostalgic mm-hmm. reason to own the thing, it's a toy of some kind and you take good care of it. And because of that, if you look at just, if you think about it through an insurance lens, which is the business that started the Haggerty Enterprise, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, that makes you a better risk. That makes you a better risk because okay. you're going to take, you're going to naturally protect the thing that you own, sure. uh, which is different yeah. than. Oh, it's just my daily thing, and if I, you know, get a few door things in it or it gets beat up, I don't care. It's just my daily transportation to and from work. So yeah, yeah. that's the core premise. Okay. Uh, started with wood boats in the '80s, and we didn't actually really get into the automotive business in the in what we used to call the classic car space, antique and classic car space, until the early '90s. Okay, um, but uh, that was the those were the beginnings, and that core idea remains the same today.
1: So, okay, I, so I have to ask, based on that story, which is really cool, but I have to ask, what was that first car you were restoring with your dad?
2: Oh, I'm really lucky. <laughs>
1: okay, right, that's uh, well,
2: My first car um, that I restored with my dad um, was a 1967 Porsche 911 S. Cool. Um, and, I'm all
3: about that. And yeah. when I
2: was <laughs> yeah, lucky, huh? And when I was 13 years old, just turned 13, we had been negotiating with this older gentleman to buy it from him for about two years. I started when we were 11. we go out and visit him. He was the guy my dad knew. He was a little <laughs> spooky. He okay. finally just called in the middle of winter and said, come and get it, is mm. that we dug it out of a snowbank. I have pictures of this the day in the middle of winter in northern Michigan.
3: Wow. Dug it out of a
2: snowbank. I paid, I paid $500 for it. Wow. And uh, with my lawn knowing money. And nice. stored it over a couple of years because, frankly, the taillights, even in the 80s, cost more than the whole car, right? Um, sure. You know, oh, my it was,
3: gosh. Oh, you my know, gosh.
2: Horses were expensive. And uh, that was a car I drove in high school. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate I still have it. So I'm kidding. me. And really and, uh, cool. I grew up together yep.
0: Are yep, you, do you drive really around? Cool. Do you take it out it. on a Saturday morning? Were you just like, you know what? I got to oh, go back yeah. to the basics. Oh, and yeah. just, oh, that's cool.
1: Well, that was the thing we did. A, we did a feature. We've done a few feature films. One of the fir- the first one we did was actually 50 years of the nine 11. We did it on the 50th anniversary. We drove all the nine 11s. And one of the things that I thought about when we were driving, we actually had a 67 as our car from the first gen. One of the mm-hmm. things I kept thinking mm-hmm. about while driving that car was, was two things that bury up exactly what you're saying. One, 20, 30 years ago, that car was worth nothing. And when we were driving it, it was worth a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, and I exactly. just thought about the fact that, I mean, you're talking about you bought it for 500 bucks. I mean, that is what's so funny about these weird classic cars, 9, uh, 911s being a great example. You buy this thing and it's just, it's an old broken down car. And then, you know, a few decades go by and it's like,
2: this is awfully, awfully expensive now. <laughs> exactly. That's really,
1: that's, I love that you still have it. That's amazing.
2: Well, they were always kind of, uh, Porsches in particular, I always felt were dramatically undervalued. Look, they were never like Italian cars, which I get it and I know and I love it. We appreciate them at Haggerty, but Ferraris were always going to be valuable and for people with more means. Sure. Uh, Porsche's yeah. was felt were undervalued, you know, because they were kind of like that whole Porsche idea, kind of more from last. They didn't have the most cylinders. They weren't the most exotic, mm-hmm. you know, in various eras, they weren't even necessarily considered that good looking, you know, now, my <laughs> God, air-cooled Porsches, you know, yeah. are the greatest thing yeah, ever yeah. and, you know, we're we all really smart?
0: Right, right. Well, to your earlier point, you know, people will say, all right, I've got this much money and I'm looking for this car. And sometimes we suggest. So how are you with maintenance? Because mm-hmm. if you go a little bit older and do a little mm-hmm. bit of the work yourself, you could save money. But, you know, that's not a lot of people these days. True. No, true. Absolutely. And, you know, some people love to wrench. Some people love to do it. But it's it's cool to hear that story. I was just thinking about, as far as the company itself, what would our listeners be surprised to hear about Haggerty? Because I, I believe you have grown it past your folks' initial vision. What would people be surprised to hear you're into? Philanthropy or education or restoration or you know, future plans? I don't know how much Thank you can you. share.
2: Well, Next funny, time. I'll tell you a funny story. Back um, a number of years ago, we had a PR agency it was back when we were just in insurance. We kind of thought about ourselves that way. Okay. And I always had this idea that we could be so much more because look, I don't have to invent the passion for cars. I don't have mm. to invent cars. All mm. I got to do is tap <laughs> into the passion that already exists out there Yeah, absolutely. and do it at a scale that nobody had ever done. Mm. So we had this PR campaign that launched, and I, I can't remember the exact year. I wish I knew, but it was. Let's put it this way: Dan Rather was on the evening news when this story broke.
3: Okay, sure,
1: sure. And sure. We,
2: we did we did a campaign called "The Ten Most Dangerous Foods to Eat While Driving," um, <laughs> which was this kind of cra- is a little bit of a PR stunt, honestly. Um, and it was based on some evidence and you know some claims and some things that we were researching, but it wasn't that substantial of a story. But it went wild, so. Dan rather closed the evening news, reading our list of the top ten most dangerous foods to eat while driving. It became a question on the Hollywood Squares. It went nuts.
0: You're huh. kidding me! And,
2: wow. Oh no, we had a hundred million media impressions back when that was a lot. Yeah, um, for sure it was. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Suddenly we were on the, we were on the radar as this resource, not an insurance organization, but a Interesting. resource okay. to All the right. outlets and others. And I suddenly realized, like, that's how we got to build ourselves. So the first big move past you know was not just to become a resource to the media it was to become experts and like the de facto source of valuation and market data around vintage cars okay. um, right. so it was really the launch of yeah, i mean i get it this is not the most dangerous food to see while driving but the idea was everybody talks about what cars are worth but nobody has real data of any size mm. so i said we got to become and everybody's talking data, to day to data today but i said we got to be the expert we got to have that high ground like seize the high ground become mm. the expert in this so, we started buying up companies and publishers and anything we could get our hands on that had large volumes of data plus our own. Mm. And we became the source for how the market was moving. Um, out of that, we launched all sorts of media properties between a magazine that's now the third or fourth. It, it, we I think we just passed Road and Track as the third largest circulation car magazine in the world. So, no I didn't know, you know that. A, wow.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: Wow. And this is of any kind of car magazine. Yeah, yeah, that's Um, amazing. You know, we have, I mean, our YouTube channel, you know, now all of those things that were really hard in the early days are now a lot easier. But, like, I mean, our YouTube channel has 1.2 million subscribers just Mm -hmm. watching Mm -hmm. DIY videos. Yeah, yeah. uh, Things like our Fire and Fine Hunter series, you know, Redline Rebuild. It's 50 million views of us rebuilding a flathead V8. So (laughs) we went from being a service provider of the most boring service of all time which is insurance to wanting to become a resource and a partner in the space mm-hmm. play on the you know use people's passions amplify it make them the heroes and then just build as much around that ecosystem as we possibly could that's how it started so now we do a lot of things we're still doing all the media and events uh, and in fact uh, we participate in thousands of car events but we we have dozens of events and soon to be hundreds of events that we actually produce, whether they're tours or car shows or cars and coffees that we produce around the world. And, uh, and we also have a number of philanthropy efforts that, that we do, and, and we can maybe handle that in a separate subject. But I think I wish I had a good analog to what we're building, you know, is
3: mm-hmm, it kind mm-hmm, of sure.
2: a- you know, and, and because people just think, oh, Haggerty insurance, and that is still underneath there. But, you know, think of, you know, a Bloomberg or think of a Disney, you know, I mean, think of how they expanded to create more of an ecosystem. Of sure, sure. Physical things that happen, media things that happen. Those are the things I dream of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like to think about competing. I like to think about creating. And I think we're going to have we're going to have a long, long, long road in front of us of people enjoying cars. And I want to be positioned in the middle of it.
1: That's cool. I mean, it all I can see it with your driver's club that you have with the magazine and all the events. I can see all of those things existing just right there, which is really cool.
0: So I have to ask, I'm well known for not allowing people to eat in my cars. Yes, you I'll, are. I'll allow a bottle of water That's to why, This is
1: why we're right laughing, Mikheel, at you saying that, because people have <laughs> asked, in the question section of this podcast, people have asked Paul many times about, like, what would you most fear somebody eating? This, these questions have come up, so keep going, Paul.
0: Currently, our audience, I think, has suggested Flamin' Hot Cheetos is the top food, I think, right now that I wouldn't allow. So my question to you is, are you going to redo the list? I mean... It seems like there's, <laughs> there's even more junk Mounted food that should make the list, right?
2: Oh, for sure. Um, and you just think about the proliferation of takeout and all the things uh-huh. that happen. And I can tell you what was funny when we first published the first list. We had all these crazy kind of answers. And coffee, actually just simply drinking coffee, especially in vintage cars, was tough because there were no cup holders.
3: Yeah, and so right. you get
2: people camping on the brakes, spilling on themselves, <laughs> and then they get into an accident, right? But <laughs> what was funny is we started having, when we first had that story, we had all these people from law enforcement call us from all around the country and said, Oh, no, your, your list is wrong. The number one thing is pizza. That's the number one bad thing.
3: Interesting. And okay. they,
2: they said you, you can't imagine the number of people that go out to go, you know, instead of getting a pizza delivered, they go get it for takeout.
3: Mm-hmm. The
2: box is sitting on a seat next to them. Oh. They reach over to grab yeah. a slice and get into an accident. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> You know, that delicious pizza smell in the car. Seriously,
1: it's sitting there next to you. The, the, the You're at a light or mm-hmm. it'll be fine. I need a slice. That's terrible. Well, I mean, honestly, it's got to be better than what we're all doing staring at our smartphones now. But still, I yeah. can see the pizza thing. I do like, do like that. Uh, so I'm actually curious about, uh, let's dive into, I, we don't have to go too far, but I'm very curious. Is the 911 that you still own, is that the favorite car you own or do you have something else that is eclipsed that? I love that you still have it, by the way, but you have something else that has eclipsed that.
2: Uh, Gentlemen, 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 the most evil question anybody can ask me is, what's my favorite car? Well, that's the um, evil
1: question for us. You're, you're welcome to give it parameters because when people ask it to us, we go, give us parameters. Is it a price? Is it a what? I'm, I'm very
0: curious. Yeah, we Go wherever we agree. you want. Yeah. We agree.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Well, here's what I was do, because that car is so unusual for me. I often set it aside because mm-hmm. I always tell people like, and I I have the pleasure of both personally owning and then corporately we own a lot of vintage cars because we believe in getting people behind the wheel. So love it. So do you we. know, like last cool. year, I got 800 of our employees driving manual transmissions. We just Good. we ship cars all around just to get people driving. Good. So you know, I love getting Fantastic. people behind the wheel of cars that are Fantastic. easy to drive. We also employee restoration programs there's always two cars being restored at any time and hundreds of our employees are working on them but so I usually set the Porsche aside just because okay, if sure. everybody, if anybody came down and said, pick one, what's the one? It's like, well, you know, we grew up together. We're going to grow up sure. together. together. Sure. And yeah. that was the first car I drive in the spring, and it's the last car I drive in the fall. But, I love Oh, that's um, cool.
1: I love that. That's cool. Sorry, right. see, random side note. What color is it? I'm just curious.
2: It was Polo Red, um, okay. which, you know, in the, like, pure of all things, other than it, it is an actual 67S, you know, the holy grail of 67 short wheelbase air-cooled 911s. But to me, red is more of an Italian car color than a German car color. But it's mine. It's full of red.
1: Love <laughs> it. Okay. Car, sorry. Keep going.
2: Yeah. You know. So I mean, my my pithy response would be: my favorite car is going to be the next car. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Because you know, <laughs> I like that.
1: If, Absolutely. If <laughs> there's yep. any,
2: if there's anything I know about you know car people is that they're they're always shopping. They may mm-hmm. have their dream car, but there's another dream car in their future. Completely. You know, to me, cars have kind of like. Personalities and I like cars of a lot of different eras. Um, you know, sure, I like stuff that goes fast. Um, I'm probably more of a sports car, European sports car, or muscle car fan personally. Those I get the most enjoyment out of. Just driving because I like to drive, but I like operating cars from different eras, even if they're like a little challenging, you know, like okay. I, um, uh, two summers ago, I bought two, uh, full classics, you know, full classics being defined as 1925 to 1948. Oh, wow. Um, okay. One okay. is a 1937 Packard that I bought B12. I've always liked Ooh. the cylinder. Ooh. Cars and the other is a 1931 Cadillac V16. So big, oh my god! Oh, wow, really opulent car. Yeah, um, I always dreamed of having something like that. And it's it's not that they're so much fun to drive; It's they're really cool to operate. Yeah, you know, it takes a little bit more thought. You're a little bit more deliberate about it. They're kind of quiet. Um, they're elegant as it can be. You know, going out to dinner in one of those cars, you just feel special. Um, that is cool. I have an Aston Martin DB4. Um, Ooh. That wow. I, you know, who didn't dream of being James Bond? Um, but you know, Funny. my uh, DB, my DB five, uh, was a DB four. Um, and I found this was <laughs> California car and went through very difficult restoration that I won't bore you with, but that's super cool, super elegant. I have a, a car that is kind of special to me. And this year and this past year with the Ford versus Ferrari thing has been really special is I have a 67, uh, Shelby GT500.
0: Oh wow! Um,
2: Yeah, that was what's cool about it for me is it was a barn find. This is not a great condition car. Uh, It's called lime gold, which they used to call lime slime with white stripes. You know, kind of a neat (laughs)
3: crazy
2: green. And um, I knew Carroll Shelby, you know, reasonably well uh, towards the end of his life. But my wife, who I met in the automotive world, she had a PR agency, and she did the personal PR, public relations for Carroll Shelby. Oh, that's so we cool. both knew him.
1: That's very cool.
2: And, you know, we'd go and, and kind of do things with him and go to some car events with him and that sort of thing. So when I bought the car, this GT500, I immediately knew because Carroll, everybody expected him to die long before he died. And so I just thought, you know, like everybody else, well, I want to make sure I get Carol to sign the car while he's still with us.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I shipped the glove box um, <laughs> cover off to my wife. And I said, just ne- next time you're in a meeting with Carol, just have him sign it. So, you know, a week or so goes by and I'm like, hey, did he did he sign the car? She said, yeah, I wrapped it back up. It's on the way back. So I, I opened the box, unwrapped the bubble wrap. And it says doesn't say just Carol Shelby. It says to McKeel, Carol Shelby. Oh, very
1: cool. No way. Very cool, which means yeah, you're never getting so rid of that car. For me. <laughs>
2: well, yeah, I mean, I was kind of half thinking like, well, these are going up in value. I could sell it and now it's mine forever. Of course um, it is. That's so, amazing. Yeah. That's really That's cool. along the lines of
0: like, hey, how's the weather? Hey, did you see the game this weekend? Could you sign my glove box, please? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's
1: awesome there that he actually go. made it personalized. I mean, that, that was is amazing. the joke somebody told me when they gave me a book and they put this elaborate uh, inscription in the front because we're like, I- that means you can never sell this book. You can't ever get rid of it yeah. because I've actually made this inscription <laughs> exactly. for you. Like, you're right. I'm keeping that book forever. Yeah. So that's very cool. I love it.
0: Well, it sounds like you've answered my question already, and that is the aspect of cars you love the most. I mean, I come from a design background, Todd comes from a filmmaking background and so of course I love this time that Cadillac V16 just mm-hmm. long hood the the function drives the form of that car and so I'm all about design and and little things about it but I'm hearing from you you love the operation which I think so many drivers don't realize the older cars being harder to operate or that mechanical interaction is yeah. what we love so much you know kind of the farther back you go Interestingly, are those cars? You have to adjust the spark. You have to adjust the timing or the spark on the on the steering wheel.
2: Uh, The the Cadillac V sixteen, you do. You do. I thought so. Uh, Wow. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And which is like that extra step. Yeah. And I kind of love it. I mean, I have a I have a 1915 Model T that was delivered new to my town in northern Michigan, Traverse City, in 1915. It's just. So that was kind of a local car and I was able to buy it a few years ago. And I challenged myself to drive it every day, one June. And now this oh, is, wow. 1915, that's a, a crank start. So it's crank start, <laughs> pedals are all screwy, yeah. you know, the throttles on the steering, you know, is on the steering wheel. And I just kind of love it because at 25 miles an hour, you feel like you're going a hundred. Um, it's <laughs> right. It's, Right. And it's just kind of cool. Like I picked my wife up at the airport one day, you know, and threw the luggage in the back. I mean, it's, I I don't know. I I like operating them and I like putting myself in the mindset of the people from that era. You know, when when I'm driving that Packard 37, I think, what music were they listening to? You know, what's not in the car, but you know, like, what would they have, what would they have eaten for dinner? You know, like how would they spend their time? And where would this car have gone on a regular basis? You know, to me, it's not nostalgia. It's just, thinking about the whole process around it. And mm-hmm. that's why I love cars from all era. And and I kind of feel our job as stewards of car culture, I mean, the Haggerty's purpose is to preserve driving and car culture for future generations. That is it. our purpose of the business. Love it. And part of that means, you know, we as owners have to kind of maintain that muscle memory of, of operating these cars, owning own. them, mm-hmm. and bring other people into them. I mean, with only a couple of exceptions of a couple of cars that we have that are just too hard to run or kind of dangerous to operate. Whenever somebody says, oh, I'd love to go for a ride in a car, I'd say, you want to go for a ride in it you should drive it and that's you're the awesome key. that's, I love it. that's yes. great
1: that's great it's the car disease is what we're talking yeah. about we talk about it a lot of the times on the podcast we've named it this is the car disease like you said before you're always shopping for the next thing that's uh-huh. going to be perfect while you have the thing like right now i have a lotus elise i've wanted a lotus elise forever i've owned one for three years now i'm still looking <laughs> of, course <laughs> of course i am yes. we're all sure. still looking and i for i sure. love i love the fact that you're getting people behind the wheel because it's the thing we talk about all the time is i i've feel like we spend so much time as commuter drones that when we get out and we actually drive a car that's interesting and engaging on an actual decent road, Driving has a totally different feel that yeah. some people have never experienced. And once you do, you'll be here with us.
2: Well, we I like to, you know, when I talk about this purpose of saving driving, I say, hey, look, I don't want to save commuting. I want to save driving. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's be clear. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue for the future. I mean, from an ownership standpoint for driving in the future, we've talked about autonomy a lot. If you visit the West Coast that's all anybody talks about. Yeah. If you spend yeah. any time in San Francisco or the Bay Area, it's just autonomous everything. And then you go out into the rest of the world and you think, <laughs> yeah, it's not really a thing. It, we're not really doing it we're, we're yet. Are yet. We? Yeah. And people talk about that, but then you know, from the future standpoint we always feel like this will never grow old. This feeling that we're talking about, it'll never grow old. And I I love where you're coming from as personally and as a company too. I mean, what are your thoughts as the future of car enthusiasts and, you know, where are we going?
2: Now, you know, that is the question of our era, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I'm asked this all over, you know, let's set aside whether people will care about them because I do think that they will, is that I think we've confused the biggest single megatrend on the planet is rapid urbanization, people moving into cities. Mm -hmm. And depending on the age of the city, unless it's a brand new city that was created out of thin air like Dubai or or one of these huge cities in China, they weren't really built to hold all the people that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I had lunch with the mayor of London a couple of years ago, and breakfast rather. And he said the only statistic he used, he said, look, by 2030, London will go from uh, 8 million people to 12 million people by Mm. 2030. Mm. Eight to 12. It's the only number he used the whole time. And he said, look, I can't afford to be political about it. I can't afford to, you know, I have to fix stuff to make it work. You know, it's so the autonomous thing is a city problem. It's a problem that's caused by density in cities. And you know, frankly, I mean, I have a bunch of water-cooled cars that would not survive one block in the middle of Manhattan. You know, with <laughs> totally, the
3: totally, and,
2: and I don't sit there and yearn for driving through the center of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not the bullet movie, right? Yeah. So driving is going to become something that is more suburban and rural. Mm-hmm. I mean, driving for fun like kind of—and sure. and I'm sure, fine sure. with. It. I have no problem with it. I think we need to adjust to it. I think they're going to be as. Cities do clamp down on driving over the coming decades, not years, but decades. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just going to have to get comfortable with the fact that, you know, will there be storage facilities or, you know, garages that we keep our cars on the outskirts of vehicles? You, you know, you get driven over there and then mm. you jump in something fun to drive and you go hit, hit the road. Interesting. I'm fine with that. I yeah. don't care. People often ask me, will the car go the way of the horse? Last I checked, Henry Ford and all of his peers didn't make the horse go extinct. They just took them out of city centers for daily transportation.
3: So if you were really
2: smart 120 years ago and you liked horses, you probably would have made some different decisions, right? You would have bought every racetrack. You would have bought tax facilities, dude branches, anything, right? You know, you would have been thinking about the future of the horse Mm
3: -hmm. rather than
2: what was lost from the past. And I think the human-driven, fun-to-drive car has a long, long future. It's just, it's going to evolve. Mm, where right. it happened. And uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. And either way, we're going to be there helping to save that future.
1: McKeel, I love that. It's funny that you brought up the horse thing because that's the joke we've made. I've said to Paul, I said, at some point, we're making horse fancy videos because it's going <laughs> yeah. to be that thing that you're doing more for fun, like the horse, as mm-hmm. you've already said, mm-hmm. went from primary transportation to something that people do for fun. I think if we're doing more of the fun stuff, though, that actually has a potential to dig it in further in people because you're, you're taking away the stuff that's bad, like the commuting you're talking about. And we're getting down to the essence of this is why cars are cool. I think the whole city thing is fascinating to, to navigate. It's gonna be very hard, but man, it's fascinating.
2: Well, and I think you know some of the things that are going on in the world, people are going to want ways to get out, get out and away from people and mm-hmm. have private time, right? Mm-hmm. And I can totally envision you know camping and hiking and Cycling, you know, things like this are actually potentially going to really blossom in a, mm. in a world where we're still going to live in cities. We're going to still live close together, but we're going to maybe think differently about, how, about the value of getting out and away. Mm. Um, I think driving out and enjoying some of the great roads, by the way, in many parts of the country that were built for tourism, I think they could really see a kind of renaissance because people will value it differently. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not an alternative. It's a both and. And I believe in both. I believe both will happen. Rapid urbanization and hopefully a greater appreciation for the more wide open spaces.
0: I maintain that BMW should build the latest autonomous box and a straight six manual transmission Roadster on the other end of the scale. <laughs> and all car companies should follow suit. You know, they're not going to make a lot of money on that. But then everything in between. And so yeah. we've got, you know, the choice over here for just driving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you need the autonomous city, whatever, the box. At this point, every autonomous solution is a box. Yes, because you know we don't have to drive anymore. we there. And as somebody like who corner.
2: appreciates design, and you know those, the design really isn't very pretty. Is agreed, it? Pretty agreed.
1: Bad. Yes, we're all looking at going. Really, I don't think <laughs> like, I want one of those. That's our
0: future. Oh, good, paint it white too. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, McKeel, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts here because this is really, really great stuff. It's great to hear just your car disease along with our car disease and just talk all that through. That's one of yeah. my favorite things about doing this yeah. is when we just talk love of cars, it's amazing how universal it is. There's so many commonalities, no matter where you are in car culture, mm-hmm. about how it all connects. I love it.
2: Well, you know, we're, we're, we're in this together. And what I love about the car world is, again, it's a passion that just kind of exists out there. And it's easy for people to understand. And I think all of our jobs, like what you guys are doing here with this podcast and what we're doing at Haggerty with all the different dimensions of our world is let's make it easy. Let's make it accessible. Let's make it fun. Mm. And so that it's something that people want to do rather than feeling like it's uh, something that we should be ashamed of or something that's just nostalgic for the past. I'm uninterested in putting on a costume and walking around a battlefield and thinking about something that <laughs> happened 200 years ago. I want to think about this today. I love it. And I want this oh, yeah. to be thoroughly modern, that driving an analog machine around is just really cool, and it's a lot of fun. Mikhail, That's fantastic. Thank
0: you. This will resonate with everyone listening, and I, I really appreciate your time. Both of us do, and thank you so much. Loved having you on.
1: Thank
2: you, guys. All the best to you.
1: That was really cool. It always surprises me to talk to these guys that run these companies. I, maybe maybe I'm being too cynical, but I just I'm excited to discover how much they are car guys with the car disease. So that was really fun.
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I don't know. it's no surprise based on you know what we're learning and knowing and and what yeah. you guys now know about Haggerty, you can see where it all comes from. So yes, yeah. thanks again to McKeel and Haggerty for coming on. We love anything that enables our automotive obsession, also known as the car disease, which is why we're such big fans of Haggerty Drivers Club.
1: For just $45 a year, that's less than $4 a month, you get not only six issues of their fantastic Haggerty magazine, but you also get roadside service with guaranteed flatbed towing, invites to members-only events, and valuable discounts on things like tires, vehicle transport, racing school, and more.
0: It's the ultimate membership experience for people who love cars. Check it out for yourself and join the Haggerty Drivers Club at haggertycom everyday driver.
1: We're longtime users and big believers in Griot's Garage car care products. That's because while many other brands are just rebranded versions of the same few products, Griot's Garage has developed, manufactured, and bottled bespoke car care products
0: since 1990. In fact, many of their first customers were collector cars displayed at Pebble Beach. Griot's is a family company based in Washington State, still dedicated to having the best products for every car and every budget. As a matter of fact, I learned my certified paul Own car care style from Griot's.
1: We've both used Griot's Garage car care products on our own cars for over 20 years, and we wouldn't use anything else. If you're wondering how to get going, they offer free training and techniques through their videos and website and starter kits to help your car look its best.
0: Griot's Garage products are 100% guaranteed, and all liquid products are made in the USA. They offer a 100% lifetime guarantee, so give them a try.
1: When you're ordering at GriosGarage.com, use the code every day for 10% off your order. Enjoy the finest quality car care products
0: you can buy at GriosGarage.com. All right, here we go. Jumping in with social media questions. Looking to Instagram, there's petrolhead80 on here asking us if knowing how to drive a manual transmission is a requirement for being a car enthusiast. There's almost a, like a band, a rock band T-shirt with a list on the back instead of all the cities <laughs> for that tour. Like it's like it. a car enthusiast requirement checklist.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> it says, speaking of which, are there basic requirements to be a car enthusiast? If so, what are they? And will we ever offer tutorials on how to drive a manual transmission? Hmm, Actually, okay. I think that's a good idea. But of any work we've ever done on any video – This would be more about feel than anything else. Todd and I try to impart a feel of the car, a feel of the steering or the weight balance or the weight shift or the tires, whatever that is, in our commentary on videos. Yeah. yeah. But there's a feel to a clutch that is different from the next car. There's a feel to a shifter that's completely different from another one. You've heard me talk about my brother-in-law's Saab 900. (laughs) Neutral. Complete lack of feel. Wow. (laughs) Neutral is, is uh, circular motions with your hand. It's That's craziness. really still amazing to me. But I do like the idea. I, I think maybe if we shot correctly, I think it could be pretty interesting. And uh, I, I do like the idea.
1: My, my struggle with this is, always. look, I like the question, and we've talked about it a little bit, do some kind of instructional stuff. My question with it is always, I feel like those videos already exist, so are we adding or not? And that's the hard part, because I feel like a lot of other channels have already done those, so they exist. But maybe it's just the fact that you guys would like to see our version. I'm happy to hear more commentary on this. It's a
0: worthwhile thought. Let me clear things up by making it more confusing to yes, what exactly. you already know. Yeah, that, Let that me is, clear it all absolutely.
1: up. Absolutely. That's totally my concern. That's absolutely <laughs> yeah. my concern. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. Let's, it's Nitsua on Instagram says, okay, what skill level is required for the pilgrimage trip? Do you recommend some sort of performance driving school or a number of track days prior? Absolutely not is the answer. <laughs> yeah. What's crazy about this trip and the way we've, we've built it. Now, look, Ross Bentley, who is an amazing driving instructor. If you haven't heard from him, he's an incredible driving instructor. He, he did a very famous book among drivers called Speed Secrets. He I'll writes up, a column, yeah. I believe it's for road and track. He is a king... Of driving instruction. He leads a trip similar to ours every year. It's not as all-inclusive, but it's an excellent trip, okay? But his trip has a barrier for entry. If you don't drive at a certain level, you can't even come. Our trip is not at all like that. We want everyone to come. And the first year we went, we literally had a guy that had professionally raced Pikes Peak and a person, another guy, who had never visited a racetrack let alone driven on one in the same group yep yes and they both had a blast and every year we have had every year we've gone we've had somebody who's never even seen a track before let alone driven one and they've always had fun so there is no barrier for entry other than just
0: coming and if you come we're certain you will have fun yeah, absolutely. It's really not like Gordon Ramsay, you know, the chef who runs Kitchen Nightmares and Hell's Kitchen and, you know, all this stuff where there's there's kind of a, a barrier. If you don't use salt and pepper, what are you doing? You know, I've, I've seen just, well, you're this brilliant brilliant chef and you're an up-and-coming student. You forgot salt and pepper. And what are you thinking? And, mm. you know, there, there's like a, you got to bring some skill. That's not the point. You're going to learn so much. And ultimately, our trip is designed to have fun and the camaraderie. And breaking down at the end of the day over a nice meal, what did you learn today? What did you think? Yeah. Is it as yeah. scary as you thought? Is it not? What totally. did you learn? Yeah. How yeah, can totally. you apply that Absolutely. to future driving skills? All those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I yep. totally agree. All right. there is a question here from Ronald Harrison on Twitter. A design question, which is, you know as you know, low-hanging fruit. I, I can't not yes. take the bait. Quite what timely. It, <laughs> well done. What is it about the Tesla Model S's design? where it has not needed a new look in eight years, yet other manufacturers are seemingly having to do a model refresh every couple of years. Well, you're hitting on successful design. And it's mm. still a large enough car and a a shape that's in vogue, I guess, could be the okay. Okay. the way of describing it. Because hatches are still beloved by people, and from a space and utilization standpoint, it's still very useful. It's not... The first one, it would, certainly not the first Tesla, which was based on a Lotus Elise. That yeah, was just yeah. proof of concept. Mm-hmm, but the Model mm-hmm. S, you're talking about surfaces that are long lasting. And so you're starting to see it. I have hope. When we talk about design that is long lasting or design that is short lasting, just a flash mm-hmm, in the pan. There's a lot mm-hmm. of tension and aggressiveness all over the surface. And it looks great right now. And then eight years down the road, you think, yeah, that was a time in my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was, yeah yeah it was a time yeah, yeah. in in car history sure what's next the tesla model S doesn't suffer from that nor mm. do all the other models <clears throat> except for the Cybertruck. but that's a whole different discussion we'll have all to different get back that conversation But I also
1: wonder, and and I'm asking you, Paul, honestly, does Tesla get away with it a little bit? Because I do love the Model S. And I actually think, and being a a design basically newbie, I actually do think that the Model S remains their best-looking car, and they've gotten worse ever since. However,
3: (laughs) what Tesla's
1: best at is the new shiny object. And unlike any other car company you can think of... Tesla isn't releasing the latest refresh they're releasing the latest brand new model that's never existed. It's not like yeah. you know we we've, we've GM yeah. GM or Mazda or whoever is is updating the bring it bring it up. But Tesla is like, we've never even released this car before. So I think they have had a little bit of a free ride because the Model S, first and foremost, well-designed. But they keep releasing entirely new cars that have never existed before, their design being you know up in the air. But at least it's got people talking about the the Model S in general mm-hmm. and by default. So they haven't had to update it because they've
0: kind of gotten away with it almost. I can see that. I, I'm with you a, a bit on that. And you're right, just because of tech and shiny newness. But it's pretty amazing. What they've done is come out with one more classic, beautiful design. But since they're a small company, guess what? They don't have the R&D dollars to make the turnover, to make those new refresh changes very often. They did make one fairly recently, just a few years ago, and they updated the front fascia. But to my knowledge, all the sheet metal was unchanged. That means Mm -hmm. you don't have to change the tooling. The sheet metal, the stamping is all the same. If you you
1: watch you don't our original... have to invest the
0: dollars, which is great. Yeah.
1: If you watch our original Model S review, we were driving it before the front end refresh. So it used to have kind of a black mm. shield on the front. And then it has that now very small opening, very small kind of slit opening with the Tesla T in the middle. So that's the only change I even think they've done. But they get a lot of, hey, look at the new shiny thing, because that right. is what they're best at.
0: Well, here's yeah. another example, and that is McLaren. The 12C mm-hmm. looks good as a supercar. Yeah, the McLaren yeah. F1 stands the test of time. Yeah, There's a few cliched things around it, mm-hmm. and, you know. Okay, but wow, that thing rolls up. It looks so good. The McLaren 12C still looks good. But mm-hmm. as we've gotten further down supercar craziness, yeah, uh, okay, they should look crazy. They shouldn't be, you know, classical, beautiful test. The you know test of time like the Jaguar XJ220, which still looks gorgeous. It you does, I mean? doesn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. just pretty versus aggressive. The McLaren Sen is cool, but whoa. You know, that's right now. You know what I mean? This reminds me, and I don't know if he's listening, but our friend Billy
1: Johnson, the racing driver, lives in Florida. And yes, I have been watching. Yes. Have you seen his Instagram account of late?
0: Yes, I have. With jealousy. I don't much know what's happened. Billy, I, well, I,
1: I, I've, we, we've traded a couple little notes, but I need to like dig in and have you explain yourself because he's been driving all of the icons from the 80s and 90s, and he got to drive an XJ220, and I am seething with jealousy. I am yeah. not even a quarter of the driving talent that Billy is, but what the heck happened there? So anyway, so that he drove like an a XJ220 and an F40 within two weeks of each other, and mm. I was like, excuse oh. me, but yeah. where was that conveyor belt, and how can I stand at the end of it? Anyway, uh, Wheelman GT on Instagram said, Is the S7, the Audi S7, a bad handling car? The motor is in the front of the front axle, and I'm concerned what this will do around twisty roads. He said, I realize it's a a luxury car, but still explain it to me. (laughs) Wheelman GT, I I don't know if you've ever heard this. This made me laugh, and I I stand on it, and I must give him credit. Chris Harris said my favorite thing ever about Audi dynamics, and it doesn't mean I haven't driven Audis that are fun, but he made a comment where he described Audi as (laughs) packaging... Understeer for the masses, which I thought was fantastic because (laughs) that is, is by and large, the natural tendency of every car that leaves the factory because they've decided that understeer is safer for most drivers than, than oversteer. I get that. But you have already hit on it, Wheelman GT, and that is that these engines generally are in front of the front axle. So if something's going to happen, it's going to plow. It's going to understeer. It's kind of a reality of Audis. Um, I say that. What kind of driving are you doing that is creating that problem? Theoretically, if you have a car that has a tendency to understeer, what you as a driver need to do is find where it does that and then not drive that way. Drive within the limits of your car. So there's sometimes there's a disconnect with enthusiasts, I feel like. And if we discover that a car has a weird tendency we want to try to find that weird tendency more versus uh, think about race drivers I was just talking about billy, billy johnson a race driver can't say well i wish this was a totally different chassis i mean they can say it but they are being paid to drive the chassis <laughs> right. they've been given
3: right. so now Very they have so. to figure
1: out how to get the best possible driving out of the chassis they've been given if you want an audi s7 do i think there are other cars you'd enjoy on a back road more yes Alpha julia would be an example, but. If you like an Audi S7 for everything else, then you're just going to have to kind of accept what it does or doesn't do on a back road. Think about how I have driven my Phaeton on all kinds of roads and just gone, "Yeah, this is not the same ex-
0: existence at all." Mm-hmm. Oh, I well, was speaking of Phaeton. Peter and Slow on Instagram says, "So, who's winning the big sedan challenge currently, Paul or Todd?" Well, define winning. I, I, I think agree. we're both. I think we both lost by owning these cars. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, something you don't know, I took the Maserati out earlier today. Uh-huh. and got a new warning light the engine light Ooh. came on the check engine Ooh. light came on and uh it said well of course it says c dealer even for the oh, lamest yeah. of things both like of these cars the do. rear both stop of lamp. these
1: cars do that yes
0: <laughs> so funny all right so this said engine control system fault c dealer oh like what what does that Ooh. mean how that much money nice is that scary. Yeah, I for think sure. there's like this underhanded conspiracy thing between Maserati and their dealers. Like, you know what? At uh, you know, the, about the time when your second house payment is due, we'll make the check engine lights <laughs> on everybody's Maseratis come on, and you can cash in. No, I I've got this engine control system fault. Like, oh I, god, anxiety. What? What does that mean? The car's well, still running. I, yeah. Do I keep driving it? Do I stop and pull over? I just decided to keep going, and the engine's still smooth. I, I don't know.
1: That's funny. I mean, I, I agree with you. There is a real question, follow-up is question here. Is that winning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, define winning. And, and, it, and if the question is just the money spent— I think your car – and we'll post this tally when we get closer to the end of this. Shall I call it an adventure? Anyway, the debacle. We'll, get, we'll, we'll post <laughs> yeah. the, the whole list when Something we get closer. Something in between but, the two. But I think your car is running a little over fourteen grand right now, which means purchase yeah. price and everything else you've spent. And mine is running a little over eleven. So I have more than doubled the price of my car in spending money on it, but I still haven't spent grand total, haven't uh, hurt the show for more than your car cost. But at the same time, I also have to say this. I feel like I've done a couple more prevent, preventative maintenance things than you because I've driven that car almost daily for six months. True. So Very true. Yes. What is the trade off? And we have laughed about, and you will see it in this upcoming autocross video, that who knew that the Phaeton with its all wheel drive takeoff and normal automatic is surprising at autocross? Unbelievable. So crazy. Oh, you know what? Dustin asked a good question on the Taurus SHO. He said, hang on. What do we think about the Taurus SHO as an enthusiast car? He's listened to more than 100 episodes. Thank you, man. And we haven't ever really talked about it. The Taurus SHO is an actual bargain for a big family sedan with some dynamics about it. But it is a front-wheel drive architecture that's been made into all-wheel drive. It is large and I've driven mm-hmm. this thing on the road, mm-hmm. and I've driven it on track, and it it, it never stops feeling big. Okay, so the, there are uh, I'll give what you the a journey obvious...
0: song from the eighties, possibly yes, that's terrifying. Big or something. Yeah.
1: Wow, easy there. But but I, I but I'll, look, I'll compare the obvious one, all right? The Chevy SS is so much more a superior dynamic car than the SHO. That's why it gets discussed. The Alfa Julia is a much better dynamic car. Now, neither of those cars I just mentioned can you get for 10 or 12 grand and you can get a Taurus SHO. You would enjoy the SHO more than most mid-size sedans that are front-wheel drive. The SHO would be better. If you're looking for a great handling big family
0: sedan it's not a standout so i hope that kind of clarifies that guy there's a question here from burl pettibone on facebook who asks what happened to interior design in cars burl is six <laughs> foot six and feels relegated to 80 sports cars due to being able to comfortably fit in them while well, you're mm. also six foot six burl so you know, that is i, I know it's you It's just a that. problem
1: it's just a problem yeah
0: <laughs> he says he's very into japanese sports cars CAD design in the 90s makes it virtually impossible to fit in anything in that era. And despite owning a 370Z manual and brake upgrade, of course, he's had to dimple the headliner insulation to sort of fit in it. And he said his wife's Focus wow. ST isn't any better, but that could be due to the full leather Recaro upgrade. I think you've just hit on it. First of all, safety. Later in your your wording here, you're, you're talking about proliferation of safety features. And yes, that is. Look at the Acura Legend From the 90s, the A-pillar is sort of thin. Well, let's go back to the 80s. The Acura Legend in Mm -hmm. the late 80s, like 88, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's very thin because there's no airbags in that A-pillar. It's just where the door meets and the windshield is mounted. It's all it is, just a thin piece of metal. That's it. And so that kind of translated throughout the cabin. And then now the proliferation of safety features and the the attention paid to the occupants, which isn't a bad thing. But the other part of this equation is what you just hit on Burl, and that is trim levels. Mm-hmm. Imagine luxury cars from the 80s and 90s. The S-Class was just the S-Class. I mean, I know you could get it with the different engines, but interior is pretty much the same. Now there's trim flavors and, well, I got that engine with this package. BMW Mm. is the king of that. I got the, (laughs) wait, is that the track package or the executive package? And can I get one with the other? And how do I mix and match? I just want the features from that. And so all these upgrades are now, you know, parts are being designed, of course, for the car, but they're being designed, you know, as a trim level. And then safety features have really put on top of that. Also the electronics it seems like everything has a usb port in it or connects to the internet or something it's all electronic so while you might think the wiring harnesses you know make things slimmer which certainly done that to the screens but if you add more solenoids and motors and Mm -hmm. massage Mm -hmm. in the seats and you know the heating and the cooling and well that suddenly your seat weighs 200 pounds it's great and i I want those features but yes now it's thick and heavy and robust and okay. It's not just, you know, Honda Prelude seat from the 80s. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. You know, that's funny because you just it got me thinking about the seats. I need to look this up. Somebody will. I want to know what the Phaeton seats weigh. Because I <laughs> no, wouldn't don't. be surprised <laughs> no, if those don't. two front seats weigh 500 pounds. Together, uh, you know, like, co- yeah, combined. Like if each oh, one of them yeah. is a two hundred plus pound seat. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised at all. They do everything, and they did everything with early two thousands tech, heating, cooling, massage, multi way movement. Because I've got the eighteen way movement. None of that stuff was small and rob, uh, you know, small and robust and well designed at that point. It was just excited that it worked. And they're mm-hmm. they're possibly the thickest seats I've seen in a car. Now I really want to know. I need to look that up because <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised honestly if that's 500 pounds between those two
0: seats. It's just madness how much that's gone on. Yeah, the motors, the cooling, the piping, all the stuff in there to make it all work. And
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Alec asked a very timely question on Facebook. He said, what are our thoughts on contactless car meets? We're all supposed to be at home right now. He's saying, okay, so we're all (laughs) temporarily at home and unemployed with nothing else to do. Can't we go drive our cars? Yes, you can, because that is the perfect way to socially distance yourself. You go drive your car on a fun road. But what if you want to take your friends? Mm. I love this idea, Alec. I love the idea. I'm very concerned about it working, because if you're not supposed to be hanging out with others, we as car people don't do that well. We want to get out at the spot of the overlook and walk around the cars. I think if you and your buddies wanted to go on a drive with your cars, that's fine. But the minute you have, this sounds terrible, the minute you have to talk to each other, I think somebody's just going to get out of the car and walk over and now the whole idea is ruined. So I think it's a question mark.
0: All right. Jeffrey Yu says, let's talk about sports mode. We all know normal modes is just, you know, for the company to claim better miles to the gallon. This This is a good one. What really is the downside of driving in sports mode all the time, assuming all it changes is a throttle response or torque mapping, and how should someone handle maintenance if they do drive in sport mode all the time? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let's start with your owner's manual. Does it say anywhere in there that that mode is for special occasions only? Don't do it all the time. Just just push that button once in a while when you feel the urge, but That's the rest funny. of the time, avoid the big red sport button. Don't push that button. No, it does not say that. Todd's wife drives their Cayenne V6 in sport mode all the time.
1: Absolutely, she does. She, she cannot stand it? Uh, it, it. Normal. I mean, but... Right. but Exactly. But you're talking about the fact that all of these manufacturers have to worry about warranties, and they have to worry about the car. This is why tuners find availability in cars to do more, because the tuner's not worried about your warranty. Mm -hmm. But the manufacturer is. So almost always, with the exception of some major hyper-enthusiast-focused cars, generally your average car of any kind is held back is almost the wrong word, but that is kind of the right thinking, so that they can get it into a realm where it's never overworking itself. And again, as you've already said, Sports mode is typically throttle mapping, which means your engine's now just getting more fuel and doing more when you push down. That doesn't really hurt anything anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. Rarely am I not in sport mode in the Cayenne. Or, sorry, in the Cayman. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, usually I'll let it warm up for, you know, a block or two, and then Mm -hmm. we're in Mm -hmm. sport mode. And she warms up fast, and that's how I like to drive the car. I mean, think about the Hellcat Jeep Grand Cherokee, the Trackhawk. Yeah, yeah. That thing comes with a warranty. Which is nuts. That's an engineering success right there. Launch mode. Yes. Launch mode with that much horsepower, all wheel drive. Mm -hmm. They figured out how to do it. That's astounding. Mm -hmm. If they can do it, I think everything is fine. It is very much back to food. (laughs) It's unlike chefs. Who don't cook for your heart health? They're not cooking for your health. They're cooking Mm. for your taste buds. Yeah. This might kill you, but just taste this. It's so delicious. You'll be so happy, though. Yeah. Oh, man, does that taste good? Yep, there's bacon in that, too.
3: Uh, you
1: know, and that really is that. Really, honestly, I have very few keys of life to pass on to my son, but really, bacon and chocolate are two of them. Those are really, those are really just about the end of my wisdom I have for my ten-year-old. But one well, of that and cars are cool. But that one clearly has grounded. So as soon as we get, you know, cars are cool, bacon and chocolate, I think my work might be done. Honestly, I, you know. how
0: to be the best father ever is like a one-page book, two-page book, I guess.
1: Exactly. <laughs> o- only if you use a really big font. Otherwise, it really could fit on one page. Uh, Benjamin Thompson said on Facebook, "I've leased." A 2018 GMC Canyon. Now, my problem already, Benjamin, is the fact that this sounds like you've already done this. So I'm not sure of my ability to help you because your next comment is, I love almost everything about it except the seat. I'm 6'3", 270, and I can't get comfortable. He said Mm. it's not a lack of space Mm. thing. It's just I don't like the seat. The padding's not right for me. The bolstering's not working. My family says, who cares? And buy it out. Do you guys think the seating is a reason to get rid of an otherwise great vehicle? Now, my two thoughts here. Are you saying the only reason you're asking this question is because you're at the crux of buy it out or not? And I'm because my th- thinking here, Benjamin, is I think your family is completely wrong. I think comfort in the seat of a car is the number one thing you cannot tolerate if it doesn't work for you. Now, having said sure, that, sure. I do think – and you've you've had this car, it seems like, for a little bit already – I do think that your body adjusts within reason. If you get a brand new car, even if you like the seat right away, your your body's going to kind of have to get used to it. But mm, then, if your body kinda... never really does, you got it. You got to move on, man. I I mean, look. Do you, let, me, let me paint the picture the other way. Do you want to keep it and try to fix that seat? Do you want to go seat uh-huh. shopping and put some seats in and maybe change? The, do you want to really try to R and D that in case you figure it out? And then if you do. Great, but if you don't, are you going to sell it then? What, I, I think you've got an opportunity. If the lease is ending, you should walk away, and you have to get something you can fit in. I think that's paramount.
0: Billy Nguyen on Twitter says he's not driving as much as he was two weeks ago. How long will the gasoline be good in his gas tank? He says currently he's at half a tank and hasn't filled up since, well, just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I want to bring you back to the Chevy Volt. When mm-hmm. that first mm-hmm. came to market, People were saying, I drive from home to work and back. I haven't filled or touched the gas tank because the the engine doesn't kick on. I'm still in electric mode. i charge at home. So think about that. And people claimed, no way to verify this, haven't filled up in a year. I haven't filled up in six months. Blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Think about parking at the airport. Your car's parked on your two-week vacation. Everything's fine when you come back. Mm Yep, right? yep, yep. Yep. It takes years for that gas to turn into varnish. It does. It takes years. So if you're mm-hmm. worried about it, a solution is to not fill it up all the way. If you're driving less, when you go out mm-hmm. just add a splash of fresh fresh gas. Mhm. And sure. then, you know, drive some more and then in a week or two or 3 or 4, add a little more fresh gas. You don't have to fill it up all the way. Mm-hmm. Just keeps a little bit of stuff flowing through there. That's totally fine. I, I mean, I'm not here to Tell you add, you know, various additives to your tank or something like that. But if you, you just want to keep things circulating through and you could alternate, if you don't use premium fuel now, I highly recommend it, but that's just me. You could alternate. You could splash it with a little bit of premium here and there, or you could, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm. You could just sure, alternate, yeah. just keep it, you know, not quite topped up, but uh, as, as your driving habits change, certainly. But ultimately it takes a long time for anything to really go bad from time it, it, yeah. it can don't go me it's don't me it's certainly it not an
1: not an overnight or even couple of week thing i mean i think about the lotus all started yeah. once a month once every 6 weeks through the winter time and it runs okay and i probably don't yeah. burn through all of the gas that i put in before i put it away i don't burn through all of that until the springtime as far as everything mm-hmm. that was put in before i put it away i've never had a problem
0: mhm and you and i were on a and we had a guy's trip. I think like six guys went camping a while. This has been years now. And we had yeah. this minivan. Yep, yep. And a friend of ours filled it up and he got some bad gas. Of course, yep. I think he put 85 in because it's a rental car and you don't want to spend money on gas. But still. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the van started acting up and all six of us were like, well, what the heck? is Are, are we going to be stranded out here? Yeah. yeah Turns yeah. out he just got a batch of bad gas. It yeah. happens. Yeah. I think, that, ultimately, I think that tank was, was part sitting, water. Yeah. It It could have been. We're looking at each other like, how much food do we have out here? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Seriously.
1: Dave Dave Schwab asked a a kind of a fighting words. Everybody's going to chime in on this one question, but we've talked about it before a little bit. I want to see if I can unpack it here again, Dave. How long do we think it will be? This this is an extreme question. How long do we think it will be before there are more electric vehicles on the road than petrol-burning cars, and do we think at some point gas-burning cars will be outlawed? Um okay. I, this this is one of those things where the the only time that cars get talked about by non-car media is the extreme end of things. Mm-hmm. And if you if you follow cars cuz and the way I know this honestly is because my parents respond to me from not consuming any car media at all. So when they ask me a car question, I'm always like, that's what you heard, right? Huh? That's interesting that's what's being reported because there's, there's not a complete sure. car picture. It's the, it's the what's the fascinating thing out of the niche part of the world that is cars. That's what makes the general media. So based on the general media, you would think – I'll be honest with you. I would think that electric cars are soon to eclipse gas cars and we're all going electric very soon – Oh, What's yeah. interesting is yeah. we actually were having a conversation with a major automaker within the last two months, and they looked up the stat for us because they sell everything from full electrics to diesels and everything in between. Right. I believe right. if we were told the stat, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, but I believe what they told us is that less than 5% of worldwide vehicle sales are sold as something other than gas or diesel, meaning that includes hybrids. Uh-huh. Yes. That's yes. electric, hydrogen, hybrids, etc. was less than 5% of the market. We are nowhere near a tipping point on this. I don't know. Honestly, I could be wrong. I'll be surprised if we have more electric vehicles than gas vehicles in our lifetime, because the second thing going on here is the fact that the availability of the materials to make batteries is already feeling the pressure for that less than 5% of the market because that same material has to go into your laptop battery and your cell phone battery and everything and they're already feeling the pinch the jaguar uh, ipace was delayed because jaguar couldn't get enough content to make its batteries mm-hmm. that's
0: already happened happen to the germans
1: same so of course of course yeah. of course that technology's going to keep changing i get that but i don't think In spite of what you may have heard, I don't think electric vehicles are going to eclipse gas vehicles anytime soon. And I will also say this. Because of that, I think there will be city centers in the next few decades that will outlaw gas-burning cars in city centers. But across the board, I don't see it coming.
0: As I recall, there was a number that stuck out distinctly. Five percent was Every other form of propulsion besides internal combustion engines. Yes. But the yes. number that stuck out was one point four percent for currently, as of this podcast recording, that was two months ago when we consulted. It was one point four percent for battery electric vehicles, mm, full mm. battery as far as sales numbers throughout everything. And that was a worldwide, worldwide
1: number. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Five yeah. percent for everything. That includes hydrogen, includes you know, all, all kinds of stuff, hybrids, whatever. And then one point four percent for battery-powered electric vehicles, which is a low number. And adoption is still the key. I mean, infrastructure is growing, but adoption, because, again, I've come back to this thinking where if you have an electric car, you think, well, I've got to fill it up at home. You don't do that Mm -hmm. with your Mm gas-powered car. You don't fill it up at your house. Nobody does this. We, We go out, we fill it up, and we come back, and we're good. But, oh, I've got an electric car. Well, that means I've got to have a way to fill it up at my house. Yeah, yeah. That costs money, and that will increase, but it's going to be a while, in my opinion. It's going to be well, a long time.
1: Tesla has done the best job here of creating an infrastructure that, if you leave your house, you can get that car charged, and you can go anywhere you want. They've done a phenomenal job with that. They are way out front of everybody, but yet yeah. theirs aren't even universal for the whole for everybody that's got an electric car. I still, I'm going to say it again, say it again. If you'd actually like to make some money, <clears throat> Elon, you could, you know, make your charging network available to everybody
0: and you know but that's not why he does it it's he's not trying to (laughs) help that reality exactly randy dunning jr says a design question for me more design questions he believes that drag coefficient has played too much of a role in automobile design Mm. in the last 30 years giving us less and less appealing shapes of cars and trucks really with newer electric technology and more efficient internal combustion engines, will we we see a return to less aerodynamic shaping and more creative inspired designs? And I can see what you're saying. The large cars of the 50s, even though they look aerodynamic from the art deco styling standpoint, they were still large bricks. I can see that. Mm-hmm. And if that's, you know, the kind of thing you like, I like those too. I mean, even let's go earlier, the the 40s, the 30s. All those cars were not exactly aerodynamic, but the production standpoint, look at it from that and look at it from a safety standpoint. Both those things have improved tremendously Mm. over Mm. the years. And look at also how designers sketch nowadays. You sketch from your elbow, you sketch long, beautiful, Mm. sensuous shapes versus, you know, a taller, higher fender that, you know, you've got to justify your reasoning for that because there's a lot of dead air space in that large fender. What's Mm. it there for? Mm. What's the point of having it other than just pure style? GM was the king of that. So that has to be weighed against production and size of vehicles. Personally, I felt cars in general have gotten big from pickup trucks all the way down to normal cars. They've just gotten big time big. Yeah. And by the way, architects hate cars. And so the parking lines (laughs) that they put in, in malls and, you know, parking garages, parking structures, it's hard to fit now our big cars into these little tiny crammed in there. Architects don't care about door dings. The rest of us do. But, well, I, you know, but I also think
1: the guy that builds a mall, he's telling the architect to, no, you know, I mean, I realize that this, what's the standard size? No, that's that's fine. We'll make it a little bit smaller. We'll get 50 more spaces in there. And the architect's going, I guess so. You know, It's so, like yeah.
0: airplane seats. Could we get another row in there? Totally. Will people really care or will they just suck it up and pay the money anyway? Totally, so Insane. I, I think it's how all these things. You know, I, I personally I like the aerodynamic shapes. I like beautiful, clean designs. I like the less fussy stuff. I don't mm-hmm.
3: like, yeah. you know,
0: bricks. To be honest, I mean, I I guess I like them for pickup trucks and you know, say Range Rovers, that kind of thing. It does say luxury in a weird way. I'll, I'll be honest, the Rolls Royce Cullinan is a brick, but Big man. Time. Doesn't that just sort of say, wow, imposing and this is yeah. a presence and yeah. that's luxurious. That's why it looks it's that a way. You're prick.
1: right. Yeah, totally.
0: Totally. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah, totally it is. Insane. So uh, I I don't know that we're going back to that era, I'll be honest, because of again the manufacturing techniques and having to justify why is that door so tall? The the unibodies that are now pervasive, it's easier to make a smaller car. It just is. It's more compact, more fuel efficient, less weight, all those things.
1: I've got a hat tip to a series of questions we're going to cover on a topic Tuesday, and then I've got the last question from me. But a lot of you are asking dynamics questions, uh, more specifically questions related to front-wheel drive versus rear-wheel drive. What makes good dynamics? What's the difference? Can you be an enthusiast of one and not the other? Lots of questions about that kind of thing. We need to kind of group them all because, I don't know, what it's kind of a general zeitgeist thing going on. We're seeing two or three questions like this every single week right now. We're going to try to cover that on a topic Tuesday. That is coming. J.R. Schultz says... Hot hatches. Which? What's the best theoretical hot hatch to add to the market? The hot hatch <laughs> version of the new Corolla or the hot oh. hatch version of the current Mazda 3? So think about it as, based on their current nomenclature, either a TRD or probably more likely the GR version of the Corolla and the Mazda Speed 3. Which do you think we need more? Now, the... In order to compete with the GTI, I would say Mazda Speed 3, because Mazda hasn't done it in a while. However, there's an interesting phenomenon that's gone on here with the Corolla and the Mazda 3 in their most recent refresh, which is around the same time for both cars. The Corolla got noticeably better to drive and noticeably better to look at. The Mazda 3 got really nice to look at still and very nice to be in, but not quite as good to drive, Mm. So, I think the Corolla wins here for me i 'd like to see what is the g r hot hatch version of the Corolla. Where is that car we drove the uh, what was it the x s e in that crazy blue that they have. Watch that. That was a lukewarm hatch review. And I'm the guy, look, I'll be honest. I'm the guy that's much more likely to come around on the Corolla than Paul. And Paul actually comes around a bit, too. It's good Uh, in current form, and it's not even a hot hatch yet. Let's go all the way, Toyota. They're building really good, surprisingly good performance cars across the lineup anyway.
0: So, all right, let's go there. All right, last couple of questions from me. They're actually kind of related. Brian Zerlo on Instagram says, Is the phrase momentum car a nice way of saying a good handling car is slow. <laughs> yep. yep, It is. Yep. Most definitely. Although the Cayman can be a momentum car. Yes. It really depends on the center of gravity and the center of inertia. Where is the engine in the car? I'm not saying the bigger, faster cars can't be, but generally speaking, it's the smaller, lighter cars that you do want to keep your momentum, but they can, which is interesting. But, there's also a question from Jared R. Beyer, who asks us if, we, if we would consider doing a mid-engines part two, hmm. which I think that'd be kind of fun. He suggests yeah. the C8, the R8, and an NSX comparison. Hmm. But then he says, does more power mean more fun? Yep, I think so. <laughs> you always think
1: so. If we do the mid-engines <laughs> too, I have to bring my Lotus just to kind of clean the field and be like,
0: uh-huh, talk to me about fun. <laughs> anyway. Looking around, way in the middle of some desert, like... Where's Todd? I, th-
1: I thought we agreed. Where- yep. He's Wait. still in the mountains, still cackling like a child in his momentum car. Yeah. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Could you say it with more
1: acid? <laughs> well, you know, I've heard it. You you uh, and I constantly disagree on power levels. I'm like, I don't need power. How, how much
0: can I corner? But anyway. Well, I I like the, you know, 250 to 350, 250 to 400 range. I really like that range I know. I get that. I get that. That's a special range. Guys, thank you so much for all your questions. As usual, really hope you enjoyed the podcast with McKeel. I think it was informative, instructive, and uh, as you can see, he's the man. So thank you for joining us. Looking forward to next time. Cheers, everyone.